For our scripture text this evening, please turn to Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 53. We are in the very last few verses of this wonderful gospel. Luke 24, last verses. Beginning in verse 50, please stand for the reading of God's word. Let us hear now the word of God. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated and let us go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we rejoice in your great salvation. And as we come to the end of Luke's gospel this evening, we pray that we might glean from it those things that are of the most importance. We would understand the significance of this event in our Lord's ministry and how it continues to shape and transform world history to the very present day. So we ask for your blessing in this, and we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this evening, brothers and sisters, we are giving thanks to God for the blessing of two and a half years of going through the Gospel of Luke. I think, if I remember the dates correctly, it was February 2021. I have to go check to be exactly accurate, but I believe that's about right as to when we started this Gospel. Uh, This would be about 123 or 124 sermons, uh, I believe, uh, through this Gospel, and I think it's been very profitable for us. And as we come to the end of the final words of Luke's gospel, it is interesting that we end in the temple in Jerusalem, and noteworthy that we began in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, There it was with Zechariah uh, entering the temple that day to burn incense, and then an angel of the Lord appeared and announced the coming of John the Baptist as well as the Messiah to come. And then we come to the very end with them praising God in the temple now that Jesus has ascended to heaven. Well, this evening, the uh, topic that is set before us, the event of these last few verses, is the event we call the Ascension of Christ. It is one of the most important events in the life and ministry of Christ. But I would say that it is, I think, rather neglected in our thinking. And therefore, I think we miss out on the implications of the ascension as a matter of daily relevance and importance for us. So it's good for us to come back to the ascension of Christ. Now, the whole complex of events of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension and exaltation and intercession, all of these things are important for our faith and our life. Uh, I think it's noteworthy that in modern uh, evangelicalism, especially over the last 100 years or so, you don't hear much about the ascension of Christ. It's not very centrally talked about. Of course, the cross is central in most gospel proclamation, and it should indeed remain part of the central aspects of gospel proclamation. But the ascension is very, very important for us to understand. There are actually hints about the ascension earlier in Luke's gospel. Uh, Interesting that all the way back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we're already hearing about this event, the ascension. Uh, Even before the death and resurrection of Christ has even happened, in Luke 9, verse 51, it says this, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, 
that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So all the way back in chapter 9, this whole sequence of events from 9, chapter 9, all the way into 22 and 23, uh, he's preparing for his ascension. Of course, he's preparing for his death and his resurrection. Uh, he's, he's fulfilling his exodus. That's what it says at the transfiguration, that he was preparing for the exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. And so it's a very important event. And when we learned about um, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, we also heard something about the ascension of Christ. Luke 24, verse 26, in the same chapter, you remember when Jesus, he came to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he says this, he says, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? So it's the sufferings of Christ as well as the glories that would follow that Jesus wants these disciples to understand. And we ourselves are living in the age of the glories to come. Yes, we're waiting the final glories of the new heavens and the new earth and the second coming of Christ. But recognize that we are living in the present reign of King Jesus over all things. This is where we are at right now because he has ascended to the right hand of God. And so this event is very important. The event of the ascension is central. And it's noteworthy that Luke ends his gospel with the ascension and he repeats the event in Acts, right? When you go to Acts chapter 1, he brings up the very same event. He retells it. It's as if it's the link point between his gospel and his account of the work of the apostles. He wants us to see that this is the bridge event. Jesus going to uh, the right hand of God explains what's happening in Acts and the rest of church history, that he's reigning, he's pouring out his Holy Spirit, he's pouring out gifts to the church, and he's growing his kingdom. That's what Acts, of course, sets forth for us. So we need to look here at the ascension of Christ. And so let us look at verses 50 through 51 again as it describes in very simple language this pivotal event. It says that he led them out as far as Bethany and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Now it's noteworthy also that the structure of Luke's gospel begins with the descent of the divine to this earth and ends with the ascent of the human and divine back into heaven. It's, it's, it's this event, this whole story of God descending in human flesh to dwell with us, Emmanuel, and then the God-man ascending to heaven to reign over all things. It's a, it's a perfect picture of the mediation of Christ. He is both God and man, and he unites God and man together. That's the very picture that we have in the descension, the descending, and then the ascension of Christ. Now, what is the significance of the ascension? That's what we want to focus on this evening. Luke doesn't give us many details about it. He just says he was carried up into heaven. And so now we're left asking the question, okay, what's the significance of this event? Why is this important? And I want to read for you the Heidelberg Catechism summary of this. You'll find it in the bulletin. I put it in there for you. Uh, and this is a helpful starting point for us to think about the, the benefits, the blessings of the ascension. Here's what it says. How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven in the presence of his Father. 
Second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends his spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. By the spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is sitting at God's right hand. That's a helpful summary for us to begin as we look at the ascension. And we'll, we're going to unpack some of those points as well as some additional points I want to bring to you in terms of the significance of the ascension this evening. Uh, but I, what I appreciate about the Heidelberg Catechism, of course, is that it often asks the question, what is the benefit of this for you? What is the blessing of this doctrine for you? Because we want to see the benefits of these truths for our uh, life and for our pursuit of godliness. And I believe the doctrine of the ascension has application. It is meaningful to us. There's many times in the Christian life where somebody needs to just grab you and say, Jesus is at the right hand of God. Don't freak out any longer. He is in control of all things. And I think we forget this from time to time. We start panicking and freaking out. We think there is nobody is controlling this crazy, chaotic universe and everything seems to be going badly. And we need to be reminded, Jesus is at the right hand of God. Christians facing persecution, they need to know that King Jesus is over all things. He, he is defending his people. He's not leaving you to suffer meaninglessly. He has a purpose for you in this, this persecution. Christians that are fighting against besetting sins and they sense their own weakness, they need to be reminded of their great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, that is there to help them in the present hour of need. And so the the doctrine of the ascension is very relevant for us. And as we review these reasons why Jesus ascended, I'm going to give you uh, four reasons. These are kind of building off of the catechism, but there's some additional ones here. And uh, if you remember when we began Acts, uh, back in April, I actually covered the ascension. When we began, that was the very first event of, of Acts. And so some of this is going to be reviewed, but hopefully a further unpacking of what we uh, covered back then. So four reasons that Jesus ascended to heaven. Reason number one, he ascended to heaven to rule over all things. He ascended to rule over all things. And when we say that Jesus rules over all things, we mean it in the most comprehensive sense possible. Jesus is the king of the entire universe. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's what he said to his disciples as he sent them out upon their commission. Uh, What a good foundation for a mission, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Nothing is outside of the sovereign power of Jesus Christ. Now, unlike a human king who can only do so much to defend his realm against enemies, Jesus has no limits. His kingdom has no borders. You think of the, the king of England uh, back in the Middle Ages and various times. So the king of England was seeking to defend his domain of England. Not so much interested necessarily in all the nations of Europe and what they were doing, but he would defend that border. But there was a limit to the king's dominion. Sometimes kings would go out to conquer, but even the greatest uh, emperors of human history, they never actually conquered the whole world. They like to say they did. They sometimes claim things like that, you know, whether it was uh, Alexander the Great or 
the Mongols who, who almost did conquer all of Europe, they liked to claim that they were uh, the conquerors of the whole world, but they really weren't. I mean, of course, those men, they never even made it to South America. There's a whole set up North and South America never even were touched by these world conquerors. But Jesus' kingdom is absolutely comprehensive. It has no borders. That is what we read in Daniel chapter 7, that when Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, he came on the clouds of heaven, he, he came before the Ancient of Days, and what was given to him? It was given to him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So it is a kingdom without borders, and it is a kingdom without end in terms of time as well. As the scriptures tell us, he shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Psalm 72 tells us. And Revelation chapter 1, when John writes to the persecuted Christians who are not really feeling that Jesus' kingdom is perhaps uh, conquering, if they were just to use their human senses and to use the standard categories of conquering, what are the very first words of Revelation 1 verse 5? It says, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ, who is the ruler of the kings on earth. Not, it doesn't say, He is one day going to be the ruler of the kings on the earth. It says he is ruler of kings on earth. Even as Revelation was written very early in the expansion of that kingdom. And so this is an essential conviction for us, brothers and sisters. We need to know, we need to believe that King Jesus rules over all things. And if we don't understand that, we are going to misinterpret history. We are going to misinterpret our very own lives and what's taking place in them. He rules over all things, and he rules in your life as well. And this is what we proclaim as the disciples of Christ. We are proclaiming to the world that Jesus is Lord. You remember what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, the final concluding words of the sermon? Therefore, let all the house of Israel know that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And then that message is taken to the nations thereafter. So that is the first reason that Jesus ascended to rule over all things. The second reason Jesus ascended is to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And this is mentioned here in the catechism as well. That we have an advocate in heaven in the presence of the Father. Now this aspect of Jesus' ascension, this reason for the ascension, is particularly brought out in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews mentions the ascension many times, and you can understand why, because the author wants to tell us that Jesus took his sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, into the heavenly tabernacle. Just as the priest in the earthly temple went on the Day of Atonement, Jesus has done the real The real thing, spiritually speaking, has gone into the Holy of Holies on our behalf. So where do we see this in Hebrews? Well, Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Listen to how the author here makes application of the doctrine of the ascension. He writes, Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now you see the logic of the passage. It says, seeing then that the great high priest has passed through the heavens, the therefore of this is, let us hold fast our confession. We have such a high priest. We have a high priest who has accomplished eternal redemption. He is the one who is interceding on our behalf. He is there in the heavenlies. And therefore, you can draw near to God with full assurance and confidence. This is what makes us bold as we enter into worship, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. And if we did not have such a high priest, it would be the height of folly for us to boldly approach God's throne. How could we enter into the presence of a holy God without a high priest mediating, interceding on our behalf? It would be far more fitting for us to say to the rocks and the hills, cover us and hide us from the wrath of God. That's what the ungodly will do on the day of of the Lord's appearing as they say, oh, may the rocks and hills cover us. We cannot face this holy God. But we can come to this holy God through Christ because he has accomplished an eternal redemption. He has brought it into the heavenly places on our behalf. That way of access is for us secure. It is safe. It is reliable. We can depend upon it. Now, as we think about this particular aspect of the ascension, I think it's a value for us to reflect upon how each of the aspects of Christ's work of salvation for us helps us to combat unbelief. And I want to bring this particular aspect out because in various conversations with fellow brothers and in various conversations with others in my life, I've noticed how creative unbelief is. Jessica and I have talked about this, how unbelief finds all these new avenues to try to escape God's promises and to disbelieve God. It's, it's, of course, one of the reasons that unbelief needs to be repented of. It is a sin to doubt the promises of God. It is wrong for us to accuse God of lying, which is what we effectively do when we doubt his promises. And I believe every aspect of this work of Christ is set forth for us to help us combat our unbelief and the accusations we bring against ourselves or the accusations the evil one brings against us. And it's noteworthy to me, when you look at Romans chapter 8, verses 33 through 34, Paul mentions four stages in the life and ministry of Christ that help us to avoid this condemnation. Look at Romans eight thirty-three through 34. Paul says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Now notice the four things. It is Christ who died, first event, and furthermore is also risen, second event, and is even at the right hand of God, the ascension, who also makes intercession for us continually. Isn't that interesting? Now Paul says, all four of these, you, you have this charge that comes against you. you. You condemn yourself, or the evil one condemns you, or the world condemns you. How do you answer it? You answer that Jesus has died, Jesus has risen again, Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God, and he's interceding on my behalf. And this is important for us because in the context of our struggles with unbelief, we we begin to doubt various aspects of the work of Christ. We might start doubting, is God really going to forgive me? Oh, my sins are too many. 
how would he forgive me? But then you look at the cross and you say the words of Christ to yourself, it is finished. He has finished that work upon the cross. My sins are not too many for the Son of God who has borne all my sins upon the tree. He has taken away the curse for me. And then perhaps you you struggle, you doubt that you could really live a different life. You doubt whether you really could be transformed from the way you are right now to be remade into something much better. You think, I just don't see it. I haven't seen it. And then you remind yourself that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and that because of that, you can too walk in newness of life. As Romans 6 says, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Paul says, yes, through the resurrection of Christ, it is possible, indeed it is inevitable, that you will live a new life. You will be transformed progressively into the image of Christ. And then perhaps your doubts, they, they run in new directions, you you begin doubting whether you could be delivered from the frequent temptations you face. You, perhaps you, you even doubt whether the enemies that you face in the spiritual realm or in the physical realm, as it were, that you, you wonder wh- whether you really could be delivered from such enemies. Or perhaps you begin fearing the enemies as being greater and stronger than your Savior. And to that, the doctrine of the ascension answers for us that Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and there is no enemy that can overcome him. And therefore, you are conquerors, more than conquerors, through him who has loved you. And then it comes to your your doubts of whether God will receive you. You think, oh, I've had a hard very hard week. I've had a bad week. I've, I've fallen in different ways. I've struggled in different ways. I have failed. Uh, I can think of so many different ways in which I have let God down. Will he receive me? And you remember the continual intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that if you confess your sins, God is absolutely faithful and absolutely just to forgive you of those sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and to receive you as his child. And so you see the value, the importance of these four infallible proofs against our unbelief, the the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension and the intercession of our Lord. And so that is indeed the second reason that our Lord has ascended. He has gone to be in the presence of God on our behalf. Next reason, reason number three, he, he was ascended, he has ascended to be glorified and exalted above all. We could, simply, we could say it another way, he has ascended to be praised, to be honored, to be glorified by his people and ultimately the whole world. And this is, of course, what Hebrews 1 tells us when it speaks of the ascension of Christ, it, It speaks of his exaltation and the glory that he receives in that exalted place. This is what we sang this morning in the new hymn that we're learning. Hebrews 1 verse 3. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. 
And then the rest of chapter 1 is all unfolding. How much greater the Son of God is as the ascended one over all things. And all of this is meant to impress upon us that he is the all-sufficient Savior for us. He is the one who can help us. That's the ultimate application of, of Hebrews And and Paul in Philippians chapter 2, what does he say? That when Jesus was exalted, he received a name that is above every name. And that that one day, we will see that day come when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord. All those that once resisted him and said he is not Lord, and they they took his name in vain, and they treated that name as trash, it will one day become the case that they will say, He is Lord, and he is to be glorified. Even those that do not believe him and do not receive his salvation will have to confess that as well on that day of his exaltation in his coming. So that is the third reason. Then we come to the the fourth reason that Jesus ascended. And the fourth reason is to give gifts to his people. He ascended on high to give gifts to his people. This is, of course, from our scripture reading in Ephesians chapter 4, speaking of Psalm 68. And here it speaks about when Jesus ascended, he poured out an abundance of gifts to his church. It says in Ephesians 4 verse 7, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, quote, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And then what does he give? He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now this should make sense to us that when Jesus ascended to heaven and he told his disciples, go and disciple all the nations, it would be crazy for us to imagine that he would send them out with no resources to do the mission. That would be crazy to ask somebody to do such a task and to say, go do that, transform the world by teaching my commands, but I'm not going to give you any resources at all to do the work. Well, that would be crazy. And that's, of course, the, not the case. We, we know here from Ephesians 4 and from the rest of the scriptural teaching that Jesus, when he ascended on high, he has poured out gifts upon his people. And he continues to continually pour those uh, gifts out. We know that the, uh, the gift of, of the Holy Spirit is central to all of this, the outpouring of the Spirit to equip his people for that work that they are to do. But in particular, it is mentioned that some of the gifts that Jesus gives are those leaders of of the church, those shepherds of the church, particularly the shepherds and the teachers here that are mentioned as an ongoing aspect of this work of ministry as well as evangelists. And and so all of these, uh, these gifts are poured out upon the church. Why? Not just in and of themselves to teach, but to teach the saints, to equip them for the work of ministry. Because the Lord Jesus wants all of his saints to be doing the work of ministry. He has work for all of us to do. That's what the rest of Ephesians 4 says, which I didn't read here, is that every part 
needs to be working together. Every part needs to be contributing. And so the pastors and teachers, the shepherds and teachers, equip the saints. They help the saints to be ready for that work. And then the body flourishes and grows as all of these gifts are exercised. And the key thing for us to remember is that the church cannot and will not grow without the gifts that Christ gives. We are utterly, thoroughly dependent upon the gifts that Jesus pours out on his church. And that's why it's appropriate, as our brother prayed this evening, to say, Lord, please raise up shepherds. Please strengthen the church that there might be those shepherd teachers to equip the saints so that the kingdom work can go on. We need to be praying for these things in recognition that God must send them. The Lord Jesus must send those shepherds and teachers. Raise them up for us, otherwise we will not have them. So these are just four of the reasons that our Lord Jesus ascended. We might be able to unfold others in our discussion or with further reflection, other benefits of the ascension. But these are, are, I think, quite central to what we see in the Scriptures. Now, finally, I want to read verses 52 through 53 as we uh, come to a conclusion on this section. And we see the response of the disciples to the ascension of Christ. It says, They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God, praising and blessing God. Amen. That's the end. Now, it's fascinating to think about here. How did the disciples go from a state of despondency and fear to a position of joy, praising and blessing God? Well, it seems that our Lord had had given them much reasons for encouragement in those 40 days of his appearances. He had taught them. He had spoken, Luke says in Acts 1. He says that they had spoken for 40 days about the kingdom of God. Jesus was teaching his disciples. He was equipping them. And at the point of his ascension, they were uh, anticipating the great work that Jesus was going to do. And they were joyful. This should indeed be the application for us, brothers and sisters, is that we come away from the truth of the ascension joyful. It would be utterly inappropriate, we would totally miss the message, if we walked out of here gloomy, sad, depressed, that things were not going well. Now indeed, you might be able to describe for me ways in which things are not going well, but I remind you, Jesus is at the right hand of God. He is reigning. He is bringing enemies under the footstool of his feet, and he is saving us, his people. This was cause for great joy as they awaited that amazing day of the Spirit's coming, and then all that would follow as Jesus' kingdom grew. Now, as we come to the end of Luke's gospel, I want to just bring two concluding summary points about the gospel itself uh, before we close this evening. When you go through a, a book of scripture of this length, like Luke, and you do 120 sermons on it, the truth is that you've looked at a lot of trees, We've studied many trees. They're wonderful trees. They're important trees. We've looked closely. Sometimes we've looked at leaves uh, more specifically. But we need to remember the forest of this gospel, right? Why have we been studying this gospel? What is the point of the gospel of Luke? Well, I think the first thing we can say in answer to that is that Luke told us the point of this gospel when he addressed it to Theophilus. You remember Luke 1, verses 3 through 4? Let's look at that for a moment and remind ourselves why this gospel was written. 
Luke wrote to Theophilus, he said, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. And uh, for us in this room who have, uh, as far as my observation goes, all of us heard many sermons, uh, knowing all of you, this is especially applicable for us because we're not uh, first comers to the gospel. It's just not as if we've never heard these things before, but Theophilus had been taught the gospel. He had gotten some teaching before, and so Luke says, you need this gospel to give you certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. And so one of our purposes in preaching the, the gospel of Luke by God's working, I trust, has been to give you more certainty about the things that you have been taught. That you come away with a greater confidence in the truth of this gospel, the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he is doing in your life and around the world. So that's the purpose of this gospel, is that you may have certainty. Now, we could say much about what this gospel teaches us about Jesus. I think it'd be hard for me to bring it down to a single verse. Uh, Of course, we could say the death and resurrection are central. We know those are central to the gospel proclamation. But I do think that there is one statement that our Lord Jesus makes that serves as a very good encapsulation of why Jesus came. And so while uh, there may be other good summaries that we could choose, I want to offer this one to you as a very important summary of why did Jesus come? Luke 19 Verses 9 through 10 is the passage I'm speaking of. And in Luke 19, you find Jesus in the house of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And there he has uh, seen uh, and and brought Zacchaeus to saving faith and repentance. Zacchaeus has turned to the Lord. He is is a son of Abraham. He is repenting. He is saying, I'm going to restore fourfold all that I stole. And so this man, who was a very unloved man, unlovable man, A lost man has now been found by the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that moment, the Lord Jesus says this about why he came. Luke 19, verse 9. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. This is why our Lord Jesus has come, brothers and sisters, to seek and to save that which is lost. Surely it brings before us the memory of the, those wonderful parables in Luke 15 of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son. And we think, this is what Jesus has come to do. He has come to seek and to save the lost. And our, the purpose of all these 120 or so sermons, by God's grace, will be that you have certainty and that you are the one who has been found. That Jesus has found you. He has redeemed you. He has called you to himself. And if that is indeed the case for all of us here this evening, then you have not received the word of God in vain. That is the purpose of our proclamation. So brothers and sisters, let us close in prayer. Let us give thanks to God for all that we've learned here. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we do praise you because we see that your word is a great gift Uh, We thank you for the time that you've given us, the the privilege you've given us to be here so many times together uh, to work our way through uh, this gospel that you have inspired and preserved for our benefit. And I do pray that for all of us, that we would have the certainty of faith in Jesus Christ, the certainty of our own salvation, 
We thank you that you have come to seek and to save the lost and that all of us in our natural condition are those that are lost. But we thank you that you have, by your grace, sought us out and and brought us back to yourself. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.